went and drank wine um, for the first time and <clears throat> ended up blacking out. And I woke up the next day in a hospital bed um, to a nurse that came in and told me that I drunk drove and ended up hitting and killing somebody. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening and welcome to The Depression Files. I want to welcome Ethan Fisher to the show. Ethan is a keynote speaker. He speaks uh, publicly in front of middle school students, high school students, as well as college athletes. So, Ethan, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Al. Thanks for uh, having me here. This is going to be a fun evening. Yeah, I'm excited to interview you. I uh, had a chance to watch some of your talks that you've given that are on, uh, on the web and so forth, and I know you've got a, a long uh, history yourself of some depression as well as some challenges that came along with that depression, and I think you said your depression, you felt like it started as early as eighth grade. Yeah. Um, that's kind of why middle schools are so important to why I speak is... I started to deal with depression in eighth grade. Um, eighth grade was actually the first time that I was ever suicidal. Um, and my parents actually chased me out to a barn um, when I had a knife to my wrist and I was getting ready to take my life. Wow. Um, so I've been dealing with depression, you know, for a very long time. And that's, you know, the early nineties. Um, and I was popular. I was, you know, captain of sports teams and I had friends of all ages and grades, but you know, when you hit that teen age and you know, you hit puberty and adolescence, you start to have all these thoughts and feelings that you can't control. And I didn't know how to control them. Right. Yeah. I, I am a school administrator and a lot of people know that. And, um, I have worked at the middle school level and there is just a lot going on, right? You got the hormones, for middle schoolers, it's the first time where they have multiple teachers. They're trying to deal with organizational skills. They're trying to deal with puberty, the boys and the girls thing. And there's just a lot going on. So tell us a little more as a, a guy who was popular, athletic, and you had things going for you. What was it at eighth grade do you think that, that drove you to the point of wanting to take your life? Well, you know, the the older I've gotten, the more that I've started to you know, try to analyze what was going on. And, you know, a big piece of it was just unsure of myself. Um, you know, you, you start getting zits and, and girls start to become a, a part of, you know, the, the middle school life. And I just remember, you know, I went from being a really nice kid to my parents to um, we were arguing and fighting all the time. And, and, you know, I can recall saying some really horrible things to them and, and, and then dealing with, you know, all the kids and, and, and stuff at school and just 
never knowing how I was going to fit in, even though I had friends of every, um, you know, every different group, which was, you know, the more I think about it is kind of bizarre because I, you know, I, I had friends, but again, I think it's just part of that human development of teen adolescence where, you know, something in, in a, and you know, the numbers probably better than I do in a good portion of kids just clicks and something goes on inside that you just don't know what to deal with or how to deal with it. And I didn't talk to anybody about it. And I think that was one of the biggest issues I had. And that's why I'm so open about it now. Um, matter of fact, in my speech, I actually have a picture of my eighth grade year and I talk about it and address student audiences and say, hey, if you guys are dealing with something at this age or right now in high school, don't be afraid to talk about it. I was afraid to talk about it. And I think that's what hurt it even worse. Right, right. So you kept it to yourself. And did you have, looking back on it, were there other symptoms that you were dealing with um, related to, to depression and or maybe, I don't know, anxiety at the time, it sounds like, maybe, too? Oh, yeah. Um, I've always had a, a social anxiety. Um, I don't like to be in crowds, which is crazy now that I'm standing in front of large audiences. Right. Um, I still don't, to this day, I don't like to go to a grocery store. Um, I go through a grocery store as fast as I can because I feel uncomfortable with people around me. Um, and I've had that ever since I was a little kid. Um, and, and really the only place I've ever felt comfortable around people was, you know, on the basketball court or during sports. Um, and you know, a part of why all this, you know, got so much worse is I started to self-medicate, you know, and eighth grade was when I first started to smoke weed and hang out with the wrong people. And I think all that also contributed to the severity of, you know, my internal thoughts of, you know, I didn't want to live. And, right. and, you know, when you're that young, your brain's not fully developed. So you don't know that if, if you go through with it, that you're not coming back. Um, and that's, that's what's so scary. And, I'm sure you've seen it. You know, I can't tell you how many schools that I've gone to now that in the last six months that have had students take their life and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. We need a lot more people like you and a lot more support and mental health support for the students at the middle school age for sure. So you started self-medicating um, were you able to go to classes and get up out of bed? Because a lot of the kids who I see dealing with depression end up making excuses and not getting to school or not waking up. Were you getting to school and were your grades doing all right? Uh, my grades dropped severely. Um, I, I did go to school and and I think, you know, that's why I do so much stuff with sports is if it wasn't for my sports, I don't know if I would have tried to even graduate high school um, because I didn't care. I didn't care about my grades. I didn't care about school, but I went to school because I knew I wanted to play football or I wanted to wrestle. I wanted to do track or I wanted to do basketball. So I had to go and I had to have my grades up in order to play sports. Um, but I also dealt with depression during those sports to where you know, I'd have really good games and then all of a sudden I'd have games where I didn't even want to be on the field and it would affect the way that I played. Right. And, and that's a big thing that, 
you know, when your body starts to feel like you have no energy and, and you don't care about anything and you're supposed to be playing a sport or going to class, it's going to affect your grades. It's going to affect that, you know, how you play um, because you physically just don't have any energy and you don't care about anything that you just, you know, a big thing for me, how I isolated was I would sit up in my room for hours on end and listen to music. Right. And that was my getaway. Well, I think you talked about a couple of points that are really big with depression that people don't necessarily get and understand. And one is how it just zaps all of your energy out of you. Right. I think too many people still just associate depression with being sad, just, you know, liven up and, um, and it's so much more severe than that. And like you said, it zaps the energy and you start to not care. Right. So it's almost like a numbness to feeling a numbness to emotion and you aren't able to get like pumped up for that game like you normally would be. No, not at all. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize a big part of the depression is it doesn't just last a day or two. Right. And, and for me in eighth grade, it was, it would start for a couple of days and then I'd have a good day and then it would go back to a couple of days. And then pretty soon it was like almost entire years that I was dealing like that going through college. Wow. And so when it's constantly beating you down, you don't have the energy or <laughs> mental fortitude to try to push through and you just let it ruminate. You, you let it snowball. You let it fester. Um, and it just gets worse and worse because you don't know how to stop it. Right. And that's, that's what ended up hurting me more than anything is I held it in for so long that it just became a part of my everyday life to where it was, it was difficult, um, to manage. Right. So you were never able to share even with a coach or, or somebody who cared about you at school. No. And, and that's why I try to speak to athletes as well is you're seen as an athlete. You're not supposed to have any weaknesses. Right. And so I never wanted to talk to anybody about it um, because you, you want to talk to your coach. And I know my coaches would have been the first people there to help out. But when you're a kid, you don't want to talk about these things because you feel like it's, you know, it, it feels like a weakness. It feels like you're not good enough to compete or perform and you don't want to be seen that way, especially as an athlete. And and I know that was a big part of why I held all that stuff in because you, you know it and that's why you're doing what you do. And I applaud you because mental health has had such a taboo around it for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Nobody wants to talk about it. And that's how I was raised. Right. I'm glad to see many more recently professional athletes coming out and speaking about depression. Um, Joe Barksdale was on the show several episodes back. Um, he's an NFL player. And a lot of athletes are coming out, which I think is great and helpful to see. And I hope that it really does help eliminate the stigma and people can see it's not a weakness. It's an illness, right? If you would have showed up to your practice with a cast on your leg, everybody would have oohed and odd and never thought twice about you playing, right? But you show up with a mental illness and present that to somebody and it's an illness that they can't see, may very likely not understand, and it's very a very different response. Very different. Um, so much so that you don't want to even 
put it out there. Right. You don't want um, to broach the topic. Yep. So you went on through middle school like this. Was high school any different or pretty much the same? And you were still dealing with depression that sounds like it was getting even more severe um, and self-medicating with weed. Were you drinking at the time too? Uh, I didn't start drinking until my junior year. And of high school? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then that's really when the depression actually had even worse episodes. Even though my junior, senior year, I, I kind of skated by because, you know, when you're about to graduate high school or, and you have friends and, and all this stuff, it kind of helped a little bit. But soon as I was away from my friends and, and alone and with my thoughts and all that stuff is when I would get into those episodes. Um, and so I continued to battle with that stuff all through high school. It, it affected my grades because then I'd start partying. And, and you know, matter of fact, I started to drink while I was at school. I even was drinking as the captain of the golf team wow. um, my senior year. And I would drink during practice when our golf coach was on a different hole with other players. Right. Um, and, you know, a piece of that was – Ooh, I want to be cool and different than everybody. Um, nobody else is doing this. So this is kind of my way to stand out. But it was also that front of, I can make this look like I'm having fun, but it's really <laughs> covering up all this crap that I'm feeling inside. Right. Like you said, it was really self-medicating, but didn't have to look that way to others. Yep, exactly. So, did any of your friends notice any differences and changes in your moods or your behaviors or any friends question you about that? And then also, uh, to bring you back a ways, you had talked about your parents chasing you down while you were trying to take your own life. And did they reach out for counseling then? Or how did that uh, piece culminate? So what happened with my parents was we kind of just pushed it under the rug. Mm. Um and my parents are unbelievable people. I, my parents, I think, are two of the best parents that anybody could ever hope for. Um, but it, being the firstborn, that was one of those things that they weren't equipped to handle. They didn't know how to handle it because they they raised me right. I had everything that I needed. I had everything, you know, to 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 go to school, and I had food and clothes on my back. And so I don't think they were equipped. And so when it happened, it was more of, okay, that happened. Let's push that away and hope it never happens again. Right, right. And it just shows that, you know, like I was talking about the last 30, 40, 50 years, you know, it's been an issue not to talk about that stuff. And so even to address that with my parents and I, I'm, they know now we have open discussions all the time about this stuff. Um, so it's completely different, but back then it wasn't like that. And I think that was, you know, something I'm trying to address now to make it more, more approachable for somebody in that situation. Right. So I, I hear you saying like, you've got incredible loving and caring parents and it was just out of their realm of really understanding, like they didn't know what to do with that. No. And just tucking it away and forgetting about it was probably the easiest way and just move on and hope it didn't happen again. 
Exactly. And, you know, they saw me as they knew I was going through puberty and, and, you know, started to talk back and argue and fight with them all the time. And my grades were slipping. Um, so they really didn't know how to handle it all. And they didn't know that the aggression that I was taking out on them was covering up how bad I felt inside. And I just think that they were doing everything they could to try to manage their firstborn kid who all of a sudden went from this really nice kid to a, you know, a thorn in their side. Right. Right. So high school comes along, same thing. You said uh, it sounds like even more self-medicating going on at this point. Yeah. Um, and that's when I actually started to become an alcoholic. And okay. not a lot of people knew that. Um, I got caught smoking weed from my parents in, in my sophomore year, so I didn't smoke again um, until I got to college. But um, So that's when I started drinking my junior year, and, and then that was my really my – my next, you know, if you ever talk to an addict or an alcoholic, you know, their levels of, you know, addiction get worse and worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I went from the, the weed smoking to the alcohol started to affect, you know, so much of my life, you know, starting back then to where my senior year, it was, it was a major issue and nobody really knew that, um, because I was so good at hiding things. And that's one reason why I address, you know, student bodies today because, and I use this in my keynote as part of, it's kind of a joke, but it's, it's in all seriousness is my mom didn't know that I cussed until the end of my senior year or my first year in college. And I'd been using the F word since third grade, almost every sentence, except for when I got around my parents. Right. So I was very good at hiding all this stuff from my parents because not only were they raising me, I have a sister and then two brothers at the time. So we had a lot of moving pieces. And so it was real easy to hide these things because they just have so much going on. And, and that's why I'm open about this and, and telling students like, if you're dealing with this stuff, don't be afraid to go talk to a friend. Don't be afraid to talk to a teacher or a counselor and that's why I actually have an open line for students. And I get hundreds of emails and texts for kids that just want to reach out because they don't know where else to go. Yeah, that's awesome. And so it's it's just one of those issues, and, and I'm sure you see it, and you you know you've probably talked to a lot of people about it. That you know people hide their issues; they don't want to be upfront about it. Right. I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't upfront about this stuff until I started speaking. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know about addicts in general, and I can't really speak even around alcoholism in general, but I know I had one buddy, unfortunately, who died from alcoholism, and I had never dealt with somebody who was dealing with alcoholism until it happened to a good friend of mine. And I realized just how much lying was a part of his alcoholism and, and a part of how he cover, was able to cover it up for so long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if if you or anybody ever attends a AA, you know, you you listen to these people's lives and they've been lie, flat out lying to their friends and their family and their kids for decades. Right. And 
getting away with it and being a lot of them were functioning alcoholics for 30 plus years. And the thing with addiction and alcoholism is it is, it's one of those things that people hide and can hide very well. Um, you know, a good portion of people. Right. And, you know, I, I was looking up, you know, just to back up some of those stats with, you know, across the country, they say roughly 35% of all, um, addicts and substance abusers and alcoholics are self-medicating because of mental health issues. Right. Yeah. And I, and I know that's why I turned the way I did because I was self-medicating and hiding these things and I did it behind alcohol and drugs. Yeah. And unfortunately at the time, you know, it probably does take away some of your pain of the depression and so forth, but we all know in the long run it only damages you more and makes things worse. I mean, to drink as somebody who's going through depression, alcohol is a depressant. So it certainly is not going to help in the long run to be drinking to wash away your depression. No, not at all. It it does just make things worse. Right. So take us uh, to the next phase in your life. You make it through high school. Things seem like they're kind of going downhill for you as far as um, alcohol, drinking, the depression doesn't seem any better. You graduate high school. Do you go straight on to college? Yeah. And college is actually where my depression hit its worst. Really? Freshman year? Yeah. Uh, freshman all the way through basically from 18 until 23. Really? All the college years? Yep. I uh, There was a good span after my freshman year in college where every night I was drinking to die. It wasn't, it wasn't to just drink and have fun. I would try to outlast everybody and then keep drinking with the whole hopes that I wouldn't wake up the next day. Wow. Um, so it, it got really dark really fast, especially when I started to drink entire bottles of brandy every night and bottles of vodka every night and um, all while trying and... <laughs> kind of maintaining, um, college basketball. Um, it, it just wore on me to the point where, you know, every day was a struggle. Every day was a struggle. Were you, uh, were you blacking out at all when you were drinking or puking oh, yeah. or, uh, I did a lot of blacking out. Okay. Um, and you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot and I've talked to a lot of people and I started thinking back, I, I think other than maybe one or two times, I don't think I threw up um, after, I think, my my second college because I became such an alcoholic, I could drink entire bottles and, and not throw up. Um, and then you'd black out, it sounds like, and were there times when you woke up and, and really didn't know what the hell you had done the night before? Yeah, many times. Um, I mean, there, there was a point where, um, I was at my fifth college for basketball. Um, I had failed out of four of them previous to that. And during a semester, I was, um, to the brink of suicide again and went and saw a counselor and, and was put on a bunch of medication and, and was told not to drink. And I kept drinking and I basically 
not necessarily blacked out for an entire semester, but I remember, you know, maybe three or four clear days out of an entire semester out of school. Wow. And I had the grades, you know, at that semester, I had a 0.43 GPA. And I, I, I don't really remember anything out of that, that semester. And so you failed out of four different colleges and then you were going to a fifth. Yep. Wow. That's pretty uh, tenacious actually to, to say, you know what, I'm going to give it another shot. Yeah. And you know, all of them were for college basketball. Um, I went and played or got to the point of playing at every single end of these schools and either failed out at semester or played a year, failed out, um, left, left at semester or, you know, it, it was, um, it was a bumpy ride. Right. Fifth college and you're blacking out all semester. I'm guessing you didn't graduate from that college at that time either. No. Um, I, I had a 1.86 GPA the first semester, saw the counselor and then second semester I ended up having a 0.43 or a 0.46. Um, and you know, that's when I left that school to go, um, to go, you know, what I say is sober up and live with my parents and try to get my act back together. So you did talk about going to see a counselor. Was that your first time ever out of those five colleges to reach out to a counselor? Yep. And what was that like when you finally, what brought you to the point of, I need to go see a counselor and what was that first appointment like? So I, I ended up calling my dad, um, at semester cause I, and I didn't tell him at the time, but I failed out. I'd lost another college basketball opportunity, um, to where I couldn't play the following semester. And, you know, this was my, you know, fifth school. So I was, I, I, I just called him up and was like, dad, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to live. Um, and he, he was the one that actually told me to go to a counselor. And I went to the, the UNC counselor, and I, and I talk about this in my speech. I'll never forget, and this is why I'm so open about it, and we're talking about you know embarrassment and taboo. I remember walking with my basketball hoodie on, um, going to the counselor and like walking in and out of the doorway so nobody could recognize me as a basketball player at the university. Cause I was so embarrassed and so ashamed that I was even in the mental health area. And I went and saw the counselor and went through the intake and she ended up putting me on a bunch of medication and, you know, I didn't listen to what she was saying and I continued to drink while I had all these, you know, prescription pills in my body and it just completely messed me up. Right. Um, I've even talked to all my teammates at that university um, since all of that. And they, they had no idea how bad it was, but they used to just say, Ethan, man, you were, you'd show up to practice and basically drooling out of your mouth. Wow. Um, so I still made it to practice every day. I was never late. I didn't perform very well, obviously, but, um, you know, that was like the one thing that kept me going was, okay, I have to show up to basketball practice. I couldn't make it to class, but I'd go to practice. Right. Was there anything that the counselor had shared with you or said to you that, that really resonated with you and made you realize what a dire situation you were in? Or the way you described it kind of sounds like you didn't really care what she was saying. 
honestly, I, I don't remember a whole lot of what she said to me. Uh-huh. And, and I had to see her, I can't remember how many times, but I had to see her, you know, periodically, um, in order to get my prescriptions refilled and to continue to have some counseling session. Right. Um, but honestly, I don't, I kind of think at that time I took it as it wasn't that big of a deal. And I was taking, you know, for an addict, you're, you're taking, even though it's prescribed, you know, I was taking medication and it was pills that I could drink on. And, um, you know, it was just a hodgepodge of all this horrible stuff going on in my brain and putting me on that. And, you know, I didn't know where I, I honestly had no, I had no desire or hope or anything during that school year after I failed out. It was just going through the motions of each and every day, knowing I wasn't going to come back right. and I would just go to another school. Wow. Did schools ever look into your history or were they unaware of the previous situations probably to allow you to join and, and hop on the football, the basketball team? Yeah. Um, most of the schools had no idea what was going on. Right. Um, and that's one thing I do try to address now with student athletes is if I was doing the same stuff in today's society, I would have never got past my first school. But because it was before social media and all the technology for, you know, instant email and transcripts and and coaches to talk because it was still, you know, the Internet was just right, just becoming popular around that time where I kind of was able to slip through the cracks. Right. And I wouldn't have been able to do that in today's world. Yeah. I would have lost. I probably would have maybe getting I, I would have got maybe one opportunity after. Um, my first school, but after that, you know, I would, I, I probably would have never gotten all the opportunities that I did. Right. So then you decide you need to head home and like you said, try to kind of sober up and, and get yourself right. Yep. So what was it like returning home and did your parents then realize just uh, how bad it had gotten for you? Uh, they knew I was drinking and they knew I was drinking heavily, but they didn't know to what extent. Um, you know, they always knew that I just, I I hated school. So they, they kind of always were like, you know, Ethan, you keep playing basketball. You got to get your degree because otherwise, you know, you're going to have a crummy job the rest of your life. So I kind of would just force myself to go to school, even though I just completely could not stand it. Um, and the only reason I went to school is to play ball. So even while living at home, you were able to go to yet another school? Yeah, I, I went to um, a community college just to get my grades up in order to go try to play school, uh, another school again. Okay. And then that's when everything hit the fan. Um, I was slowing down my drinking, but not entirely. And, you know, in November of 2003, I got invited to a house party and uh, I didn't want to go. And I ended up kind of getting talked into it because I hadn't seen my friends for a while. And I went and drank wine um, for the first time and ended up blacking out. And I woke up the next day in a hospital bed um, to a nurse that came in and told me that I drunk drove and ended up hitting and killing somebody. Whoa. 
This was when you were living at home. You were 23. Yep. Drank to the point of blacking out and not realizing that you had even gotten in a car, gotten into an accident, and took somebody's life. Yep. Wow. I'm really sorry to hear that. So you wake up to a nurse telling you that. Yep. And what's going through your mind at that point? Uh, really, it was just, um, there's really no words to describe it. I just remember putting my hands in my, or my head in my hands and just bawling. And I couldn't tell you if it was an hour or a couple hours. And, um, I just sat in that dark hospital room crying my eyes out and hadn't, you know, it's really no way to describe what was going on and um i think what really got me out of it was my parents ended up finding out um through a couple phone calls and this was a couple hours after i had woke up that um they called me and to see if i was okay and what happened and you know that's when everything kind of changed um because then that's when the reality hit and uh and it's been um difficult ever since right very difficult wow did you uh did you end up trying to learn more about the person at all or you just try to kind of keep that out of your mind or how does that work um i had to go you know to court multiple times and uh, and during that time you you see the victim's family and you know, you, you, you've got to watch, um, basically them in court giving a bio of who he was and what he was about and his family and his, so I know everything, not everything, but I know a a huge chunk, um, of his life. And, you know, and I, use this in my speech because this is something I deal with every day is every day I see his face from those pictures that I saw in the courtroom. Um, so every day that I close my eyes or every day that I, I get up, I, I see his face. Um, and it's, um, it hasn't gotten any easier. That's for sure. Right. And then were you prosecuted for it then? Yeah. Yep. I pled guilty to a DUI vehicular homicide felony three. And what kind of consequences did that lead to? I ended up getting a 10 year department of corrections prison sentence, um, a five year parole sentence and, um, ended up when it was all said and done, spending three years in prison, a year and a halfway house, a year on, um, you know, what they call ISP and then a little over three and a half years, uh, on parole and ended up spending almost 11 years total in the the system. Right. When you heard how much time you would be doing in jail, how did that land with you? So after the accident, um, I was actually on bond for eight months. And let's just say those eight months were the worst eight months of my life. Um, 
I was, you know, for a couple of days put in a mental health institution um, because of my depression, obviously, because of what happened. Um, I was severely medicated. And during that time, during that eight months, we had an attorney that was, you know, going to the courts and trying to, you know, get my sentence figured out before we went into sentencing. And so the actual first time um, that I got a call from my attorney, he told me 48 years. Wow. And I'll never forget sitting at my dad's office on his phone. And I heard that. And I remember just putting the phone down and like, you know, I, I was like, my life is over. And, and, you know, telling you this now, there's, no matter what amount of time I was given, you can't put that on somebody's life. Right. And so at that time you hear that you, you just give up. Um, and then over the next couple, you know, weeks and months, they kept going back and, you know, slowly getting my sentence down to where I ended up getting a 10 year DOC sentence in a, in a five year parole sentence. Um, which I didn't know until a couple of years later ended up being, um, you know, like the longest sentence in, in my County for somebody with a DUI vehicular homicide in 25 years, I think. Right. But that, that's still, when I talk about this, it's, you know, I, I still don't think I did enough time because I got out early because I did boot camp and, and fought fires and took classes and I did everything to better myself in prison. Um, so I got out on early release. Um, but at the same time, I still don't think I did enough time because, you know, no prison sentence equals somebody's life. Right. right. And it's, um, it's something that I've struggled with. Uh, I, I've gotten a little bit better with it over the years, um, because I made a horrible mistake and, the worst thing I could have done was gone back to drinking and partying and I will never do that again. So I've learned from my mistakes and I'm trying to be a better human being and that doesn't equate to bringing him back, but, um, I'm working my tail off to try to make things right. And, and I never will make things right. But, um, you know, I, I couldn't just sit in prison cells the rest of my life and, you know, take two people's lives at one time. Right. Right. What, uh, so you ended up doing three years in prison? Mm-hmm. Any possible way to, to kind of describe what three years of prison was like for you and what it, how you changed behind the, the walls? Yeah, um, I was severely depressed until I hit prison, um, which kind of sounds strange, but uh, the moment that I ended up going to my first, you know, Department of Corrections facility, it woke me up um, because I didn't know what to expect, um, what was going to happen in the system. And frankly, I was scared. And in order, you know, to what you, what people are, you know, told or seen about prison, you have to always watch every move you make. And I didn't allow myself to get depressed to the point where I couldn't pay attention to what was going on. Um, and so it kind of snapped me out of this 
horrible funk because I had to basically go to that point again of showing no weakness. Um, because in there, if you show weakness, it's, it's not a good thing. Right. But on the flip side, I was very lucky because I was able to work my way because of boot camp, um, which the Colorado State Department of Corrections doesn't have anymore. But I went to the military DOC boot camp and that allowed me to go to facilities where I didn't have as much pressure of worrying about who I was surrounded with. Right. So I was in the easier facilities, which I'm very, very thankful and lucky um, because I'm not hard. I'm not, um, you know, I don't have street credibility. Um, the one thing that kept me on everybody's good graces while I was locked up was the fact that I could play basketball. Right. And so that kind of kept me out of all the issues that most people deal with. So I was very, very fortunate. What was the boot camp like, and what do you think you got out of that personally? Uh, I think it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me at that time. Um, it literally turned me from what I would consider a immature boy um, to a man almost overnight. Um, because our drill instructors were real, you know, Green Beret and Desert Storm at one time, and and we did all the stuff that military do except for like hand to hand combat and, you know, arms training. So we had to do all the, you know, the, the PT and the, just the daily grind of, you know, your drill instructors trying to make you quit. Um, because that was their job. Because if you graduated after the 90 days, you were going to get time cut off your sentence. And to show kind of how hard it was, was, 45 guys in my platoon started with me and only 14 of us graduated after 90 days. Whoa, that is a so, pretty low percentage. Yeah. So 31 quit not only on themselves, but they quit on their family and friends. Um, and that's, you know, a point in my, my keynote where I talk about, you know, I had a couple of days where I wanted to give up and just go to a prison, but I thought of my, my family and my brothers and my sister and, you know, those are the things that kind of, you know, push me through to make it through so that I had the hopes of getting out sooner. Mm, right. What was that like when you finally got to leave after your three years and walk out the door knowing you didn't have to go back? It, uh, it was exhilarating and kind of scary because no matter what facility or you know what level of lockup you're in you're still locked up so three years of not knowing what the streets were like or you know i didn't know what an ipod was when i got out um so you 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 get out you're excited but there's this nervousness too of man society's changed so much it's it was a little, it was a little scary, but I had this, you know, and I use this and, and, and I talk about it is I had some crazy, like burning desire inside that I was going to do and accomplish everything that I put my mind to while I was sitting in prison. And so I kind of had this, you know, I talk about it in, in joke in the, in my speeches, I felt kind of like the Hulk 
like when you get out, you have what they call this penitentiary glow. And, uh, you know, I came out thinking, man, I'm free. I, I'm no longer in prison. I get to see my family. I get to see my friends. I get to go, you know, I appreciate it. Like I, I still go to like 7-Eleven stores just to buy a Gatorade because you don't get great Gatorades when you're in prison. So you, I appreciated all these little things that I didn't have before. Right. And, and I still, to this day, appreciate those things. Right. Did you go straight to your folks' place and, and start living with them again when, once you got no. out of jail? I had never, I've never lived with my parents since. Okay. So how did you get set up with a place to live and where'd you go once you walked out of prison? So when I walked out of prison, I went to the halfway house um, and you were still a department of corrections inmate at the halfway house. Okay. So you're, you're still doing your prison sentence at the halfway house. Um, so I did that for a year. And then the next year after that, they put you on what they call ISP, which is a intensive supervised parole. But you're still an inmate of Colorado, but you get to live in your own house. And I was very fortunate that my buddy gave me a, a house to pay rent at. So I lived there for a year. And then, you know, what kind of turns all this around is uh, the year of 2008-2009, um, I end up transferring um, to a college down in Denver to go play college basketball as an inmate of Colorado. Wow, cool. Yeah. And so I went and played college basketball again at the age of 28, 29, and 30 as a inmate of the Department of Corrections, which had never been done before. Wow. At a college. Yep. Okay. I had to find a really small and crummy college because no other college in the country would touch me. Right. <laughs> um which ended up being the best situation that I could have ever put myself in. And it worked out phenomenally. So I'm guessing just from that last statement that you were clean this whole time, no more booze, no more weed, ever, pretty straight clean. Completely clean. Right. Were you getting support to stay clean once you got out of prison or was it easy? Like you were simply, you know, the phrase you hear scared straight essentially and, and sobered up through prison or how did that work? Yeah. So, so prison kind of was, um, that shock, um, where I was clean the whole time. And I actually knew that after the accident, I wasn't ever going to use again right? because of what happened. And there's no way I could ever go back to that because the last time I drank and got drunk, I, took somebody's life so why would i ever put myself in that situation and so i took drug and alcohol classes i've been to hundreds and hundreds of aa meetings but when i got out of the system or back you know in 2008 and 9 when i was playing basketball um, i didn't have to go through any of the the drug and alcohol or aa classes to maintain my sobriety because i have something that most people don't um, as a reminder of, if you drink again, this is what could happen. Right. And I would never put myself in that situation. Right. Wow. So how long were you at the college, uh, in Colorado then? 
So the uh, self-described crummy college, as you put it, <laughs> uh, from a basketball standpoint, they were one of the worst teams in the country. <laughs> okay, <all right. laughs> they, they so were you were probably a standout, right? Yes. Um, and that's why the coach, um, he, and he's in my speech every time because he's the only coach that would take a chance on me and I love him. Yeah. Um, but, uh, they were five and 20 before I got there and we ended up going to the national tournament two years as a player and one as a coach. Um, and that was with me playing in less than half the games cause I couldn't travel with my guys because I couldn't even leave Denver County. Oh, right. <laughs> Because I had a ten o'clock curfew and a six a.m. curfew, right? So my my guys ended up losing like eighty eighty five percent of the games on the road because their leading scorer, leading assist, leading you know all that right. stuff didn't get to go with them. Right? Did you have an ankle bracelet or something, or how did the county yep. track you? An ankle yep. bracelet. Yep. So, right. um, so I couldn't leave a hundred and fifty foot radius um, around my house. So I couldn't even go outside my house um, past 10 o'clock at night or 6 a.m. in the morning. So this is why I love my coach so much is we had early morning practices that would start at 6 a.m. And I couldn't get to practices on time. And he would adjust um, and allow me to come in late because he knew I couldn't be there. Right. And we even had late practices um, some nights and our gym was off off site my first year. So my roommate at the time, and we joke about it, was everybody else would have to do conditioning and coach would let us go so that I could get back to my apartment in time before 10 o'clock would happen. So we missed a lot of conditioning. We missed all the really bad stuff because coach knew I had to get home and we weren't going to take a chance. Right. Um, You know, and a kind of funny thing, you know, I tell this every once in a while and you know, I told some of my guys, like, if we ever had overtime games and it was a late game that if we went to overtime that I would leave because I wasn't going to take a chance on being late right. for my curfew. You'd have to walk out during overtime. Yep. So at this time, uh, you are also attending classes? Yep. Okay. And what do you end up studying and do you end up getting a degree from there? <laughs> so... And this is what ties it all in. So I went back to school for my grades first. Like basketball was was like my ultimate goal, but I wanted to go back to school after I'd sobered up and got my head around what being a felon was like. I knew I had to have college. So I actually went back in a three-year period, um, two years as a player and one as an assistant coach at the university. I got two bachelor degrees and three minors, and I graduated – uh, summa cum laude and magnum cum laude with both of those degrees. Wow, fantastic. Uh, and was also awarded the Entrepreneur Student of the Year Award for the business plan that I wrote in prison with other inmates. Um, and to kind of top it all off was I was awarded the President's Award at the, the university, um, the highest academic you, achievement you can get on a college campus. Wow, fantastic. So I went back and... During what ended up being a seven-year period um, while I was still in the system, I went back and received, you know, two bachelor degrees, three minors, a master's, uh, a master's degree. I played or coached college basketball for five of those years, and I worked a 40-an-hour-a-week job on top of taking anywhere between 12 and 24-and-a-half credits a trimester. Wow. A busy so, time. 
Yeah. So I slept four hours a day for seven days a week for about seven years. And all I did was, and I, and I use this as part of my teaching is I just substituted all my addictive behavior and my addictive personality into doing positive things. Right. And so I put myself 100 and, you know, 10% into my grades and working and staying positive so that I would never have, not that I was worried about relapsing, but I never wanted to have that window of opportunity. So I just threw myself into as many things as I could to keep me as busy as possible. Right. Did you notice any change related to your depression due to cleaning up? Um, yeah, uh, I noticed, I no longer let it fester, um, and go into those, you know, I, I talk, I still have depression to this day. I still have days where I don't want to live. I still have days where I can't get out of bed, but the difference is now I have these tools inside to where if I have a bad day, I say, okay, that's fine. But tomorrow you got to wake up and change. Something's got to change. Whereas in the past, when I was drunk and high, I didn't think like that. And I would let that one day turn to two days. And pretty soon it was a week and then a month. And I don't allow that to happen anymore. Um, because I kind of put things in perspective of I'm very, very lucky to be who I am and be alive today. And so I kind of use that as my medication. Right. Um, don't don't get me wrong. I have days where I'm just as sad and depressed as I was before. Uh-huh. And I, I, I've just found ways to manage myself um, because I'm a lot older and my mind is all, you know, the older you get, your mind develops a lot better than, you know, when you're your late teens and early teen 20s. Um, so I've just found ways to deal with those days when I have depressive things. I, I go to the gym, I work out a lot, I read, I write, um, I stay involved with my family. So I still put myself in these situations to help myself not be in such bad moods all the time. Right. Well, like you said, you have a lot of tools in your tool belt now that you can go to. Exactly. Since you've cleaned up, did you... Have you ever gone to counseling for the depression or therapy or investigate options of meds? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, and, and I get asked that question a lot. And one reason why I think I, I'm able to manage all this is, and I didn't know this when it started, my speaking and kind of talking about everything that we've talked about but doing that in front of thousands of kids at a time is kind of like my counseling session. It allows me to get all this junk that I had pent up for so long and I put it into my speech for these kids so that they can see that they can talk about it. And that's kind of been my, and I didn't know this when I started, it's kind of been my cathartic way to you know, talk about all these horrible things in my life without allowing them to sit inside. Right. I feel the same way. And I know a lot of people who I've met feel the same way that, you know, opening up and talking about it and helping others is incredibly therapeutic. 
Oh yeah. I I mean every event I do no matter if it's a small event or a huge school, I have lines of kids coming up and shaking my hand and crying and opening up and telling me some really and this sounds weird, but they they open up about these horrible things that they've been going through. But it gives me comfort because a lot of them tell me that they haven't been able to talk about it before. Right. And you can just kind of see that shift in, in their demeanor because they, they just feel like this weight's lifted. And, you know, I, I had a, I did four events this last week and I had a student come up to me and he couldn't even look me in my eyes while he was telling me his story. And, you know, he was crying and I, 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 you know, got his attention and told him to make eye contact with me and you could just see a shift in his in his demeanor whether you know that carries over for a long time but even if it was just for those five minutes that we were together you could just see a little bit of pain disappear from him and you know that's why I continue to do what I'm doing because I'm helping others just like you're helping others with this podcast right I guess I'm just curious if, you know, you talk about having some days that are still really challenging for you and and wondering if there's still more you could do so that you don't have any days like that. Yeah, there there are times and, you know, I have a unbelievable girlfriend now and she's she's actually wants me to go see a counselor because she's saying that, you know, I know you're feeling great, but all this stuff that you hear from other people and all this stuff that you still have, it's going to wear on you. And I agree. She's right. And I've looked at going to some counselors and I haven't done it yet um, because I think I'm okay. But I also know that I know I'm going to probably need it at some point. Yeah. I think you got plenty of reasons to, to meet with a therapist. You know, did it doesn't sound like you ever worked through the accident. And I would imagine that's uh, taken a toll, whether or not you have PTSD from it or anything like that, but some of the depression and uh, there are different ways of different types of therapies. And just when you say you have some really bad days that are tough to get out of bed and you're going to do better the next day, still, like if you could overcome those days that you're stuck in bed, uh, wouldn't that be incredible if you didn't, if you were able to, and maybe it's not possible, but if you were able to eliminate those days completely. Yeah. Sounds like you have a, a smart girlfriend. Oh yeah, she <laughs> she she makes me look like I don't know anything. So <laughs> um I as my friend said this weekend I outkicked my coverage with her. So <laughs> <laughs> What uh, you know, you mentioned a business plan that you had created and was your business plan your keynote speaking or was that a different plan? It was a different plan. Really? Okay, what did yeah. that plan entail? So basically it was a entertainment and clothing line company to get felons jobs when they got out. Um, because I, even though I hadn't been through the process going through and talking to all the, the guys that I was locked up with and knowing how hard it was when they got out that, you know, I come from, you know, middle-class white America where I had opportunities that a lot of my friends in prison didn't have. Right. And so I knew back then that 
we needed to find a way to keep my guys out because I knew once I got out, I wasn't going back. And I didn't want my, my, my friends to do the same thing. So we would sit in the hallways and come up with ideas of, of, you know, at first it was our clothing line to have guys doing, you know, that were tattoo artists doing just designs for t-shirts and logos and, and starting their own uh, actual tattoo shops down to um, actually doing student athlete events, um, promoting, you know, hip hop and our clothing line so that we had guys coming out that had that job that first week when they got out, when they didn't, you know, cause a lot of issues that they face is when they get out, they don't have a job. So we were trying to mitigate those risks by creating a company so that they could come out and whether they were hip hop performers or whatever, that they would have some things to go off of. Oh, that's really, really cool. Did, uh, did that business ever come to fruition? Uh, we, we started to design, um, our clothes and, and then, I got asked to come back as an assistant coach at the university. And so me and my business partner that created the business and prison together, we kind of went our separate ways. Cause I said, I can't devote my time to this. Here's the business plan. Here's everything. I will help you along the way. And we kind of parted ways because I didn't know at the time that I was going to be able to be a coach, a college basketball coach, on you know parole right right and and so i went back as an assistant coach and then that's when i went and got my second bachelor degree and i just didn't have time to build a business because i was already working a 40 hour a week job oh yeah, yeah so i just yeah, couldn't yeah. do it so you've told us uh, little bits and pieces about your keynote speaking how did you come up with that idea and and do you have an, a name of that work you do yeah so you know i to tie this in is, and I use this in my keynote as a joke, but I took interpersonal communications online. So I took a speech class online so I wouldn't have to talk to people because I'm, I have social anxiety big time and I don't like crowds, but I saw a speaker come to my university and he drunk drove and killed three of his best friends and paralyzed the other one on spring break. Wow. And the moment that I saw him speak was the moment that I decided I was going to be a speaker because he impacted me so much. I said, I'm going to do what he's doing. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to make it happen. And this was like 2012. Um, and I had been asked to talk in classrooms, but never like a speech. It was more like, man, we heard your story. Can you tell us about it? And it's just developed into what it is now, um, where I've put my heart and my soul into my keynote as this is my purpose and my passion and why I'm supposed to be breathing to this day because I'm changing and saving hundreds, if not thousands of lives. Um, and so what it is called is Life Consequences, and that's my nonprofit so my, my keynote is called Life Consequences, and it's my 50-minute speech where I go through everything that we've talked about but in detail, and I actually have pictures um, 
of my transcripts. I have pictures of the accident. I have pictures of all my grades and stuff after to where I take the students through my chronological life of this is what self-medicating and depression can lead to by hiding your mental health issues behind drugs and alcohol. And so I talk about your choices. I talk about your decisions and I talk about, you know, what life consequences means. And that means you can make a mistake by drinking one time or two times or not talking about your mental health and it will cause a lifetime of consequences. Right. Now that you mentioned, I remember seeing life consequences, the name in print and there's a little more to it. Wouldn't you say then? Can you explain the, the name? Yeah. So originally when I started life consequences, it was, and that's why it's titled life con and the con is highlighted. Right. Um, so it was kind of a dual meaning behind it as, okay, this, these are the choices you can make that you have life consequences, you know, drunk driving, you know, like I just mentioned, you know, with the mental health and not talking about it, but it was also going to be used as my platform to help inmates find jobs and housing and all that, because I wanted to keep that convict atmosphere so that I could still help others when they got out. Right. And, and it, and unfortunately I haven't been able to spend a lot of time on that because of the speaking has taken over. Right. Um, and so I've been so focused on the speaking that I don't get to spend a lot of time trying to do what I originally wanted to do, um, with helping felons get jobs and in, you know, inmates when they get out. So I, I do occasional speeches at halfway houses or in prisons, um, and then if I ever have inmates who reach out to me or, or, or stuff like that, I still try to help as much as I can. Right. Can you let people know, uh, you have a website, correct? Yes. Um, I, I actually have two of them. Um, so www.lifecon.org is my platform for what we just spoke about with middle schools and high schools and inmates. Um, it's a nonprofit, and so I raise money to get to schools and um, facilities that don't have any money. Um, and then I've turned my college speaking into what is undrafted, and my website is www.ethan-fisher.com, and that's all the college athletic and college events that I do. Um, so it's kind of more of a business and personal versus you know the nonprofit. Great. So those are two sites. I'll make sure they're on the notes for the show, the podcast, and that is where people could go learn more about you and book you for some talking events, correct? Oh yeah. That would right. that would be awesome. Yeah. I've I've uh two years ago if you would have asked me this, I, I would have had a, you know, an unpolished response and I would have been timid, but I truly believe every day that I'm not speaking now is a day that I'm not giving back. Um and so I work really, really hard to book and go to schools because I know how much of an impact I can make. Right. You, well, you've clearly turned your life around. I'm sorry it took a tragic, tragic turn that, that, that let this, the change happen. But, uh, and I'm really sorry for the family that was impacted. I'm sorry for you and your family having to go through it. And you have turned your life around and you're doing incredible work. Well, thank you. Um, 
you know, with all this positive stuff I've told you in the last, I don't know, 20 minutes, um, I, I do want to continually address though, that this isn't easy. Um, I pray for them every single night. Um, I actually have, um, a tattoo. My whole entire right arm is a, you know, half sleeve dedicated to him. Um, so every day that I brush my teeth or every day that I wake up, I I'm reminded, um, of what happened and it keeps me in perspective. Right. Um, because no matter how many positive things I do, you know, I wish I would have never, ever got behind that wheel, um, that night. And right. that's something that I'll de- deal with for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yep. Well, like I said, you, you're doing incredible work now. So any, uh, you know, I'd love to hear any kind of last piece of advice or suggestions. I know you gave a lot here and there throughout our interview, but if there is, uh, you know, a high school kid or a college athlete, a middle school kid who's really struggling with some depression or even to a parent, since it may be a parent of a child who they're concerned about, what types of uh, words of advice would you have? So not necessarily words of advice. I mean, it is advice, but I just started doing parent sessions and you know, these numbers, seven out of 10 suicides in this country are by middle-aged males. That is one reason why I wanted to do this podcast with you was to make sure that if you're a parent or somebody, you don't have to be a kid. Do not be afraid to talk about these issues. It doesn't make you weak. And I think you said it, 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 it makes you stronger for actually talking about these issues. So my advice to any student or parent or middle-aged individual do not be afraid to talk about these things. There are a lot of very high-profile celebrity individuals that are talking about this now, so it's getting easier for everyone. So just please, if you have issues, reach out to somebody. And it, it can be anybody that you think you can confide in. Absolutely. Some great words of wisdom. It's so important to reach out and can be so difficult, but it is so, so important. So, uh, make it happen right yes sir well ethan i want to thank you so much uh i thank you for your openness i know uh you talked about quite a bit that was not easy and i really appreciate it and keep up the incredible work you are doing and uh, make sure you stay healthy yes sir i will continue to do that and thank you al i appreciate this opportunity thank you for listening to the depression files If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.